Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Michael Morgan. Professor Morgan is Associate Professor in the Department of History at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Morgan received his MA at Cambridge and his PhD at Yale, where he worked with, among others, John Lewis Gaddis. And we will be speaking with Professor Morgan today about his book, Final Act, The Helsinki Accords and the Transformation of the Cold War. Welcome, Professor. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Uh, Professor, what is the primary thesis of your book? The book makes three main arguments. Uh, The first is that this summit meeting, uh, that was held in Helsinki in the summer of 1975, which produced this document called The Final Act, which gives the book its title, uh, this meeting should be seen as the Cold War's successor to the defining international summits of previous centuries, such as the Congress of uh, Vienna, the Peace of Westphalia, the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, that Helsinki was doing the same kinds of things for the international system that those previous uh, great summits had done in their own time. And so we need to recognize it um, in that same roster of uh, historical transformational moments. The second argument has to do with uh, what the final act, the Helsinki final act, uh, was really about. In the historical scholarship, it's common to see descriptions of the final act uh, as a quid pro quo, an agreement between East and West in which each side gave the other something. Uh, So the typical description is that uh, the Western powers of the United States and its Western European allies recognized the permanence of Europe's frontiers, and in exchange, the Soviet Union and its allies recognized individual freedoms and human rights more broadly. Now, this shorthand summary suggests that the final act was really a deal about borders and human rights in a very transactional way. But I argue that this misunderstands what the final act was really about. My book suggests that the agreement's real purpose was to establish a new common standard of legitimacy that was shared by both East and West. This was something that was much bigger than borders, much bigger than human rights. Uh, And in doing this, I argue, the final act created a single international order uh, that began the process of reuniting Europe. From this follows the third argument in the book, which is that establishing this common standard of legitimacy, the final act laid down a blueprint for ending the Cold War. And when the Cold War finally did come to an end in 1989 and in 1990, 15 years after the final act was signed in Helsinki, the Cold War ended according to the principles that the final act had established. So those are the three big arguments of the book. On uh, page 10 of the book at the um, at the beginning, you make reference to, quote, the crisis of the Eastern order, by Eastern mm-hmm. meaning Soviet. What crisis exactly were you referring to? 
the book argues that uh, the final act was a response to two parallel crises of legitimacy and order that affected the Western world and the Eastern world uh, in the 1960s. So what do I mean by that? What was the nature of this crisis? You asked about the East. Well, uh, the basic structure of this crisis was that the claims to legitimacy on which the Soviet order had been built after 1945 were undermined in the 1960s. Or thin. They lost credibility. To be more specific, um, the advent of nuclear stability, which emerged by the early 1960s, made the communist government's old arguments that the Western powers posed an existential threat to communism uh, because of the threat of, of imperialism and revanchism, German revanchism, and aggression. Those, that's the language that communist leaders would have used. Uh, but because of that nuclear stability, it became more and more difficult for communist leaders to say that uh, Western ideology and the Western powers fundamentally threatened the existence of communist societies because that stability um, blunted that threat. It preserved balance between the East and the West. The second element of the crisis uh, was the Sino-Soviet split. This is an ideological crisis. Now, before the Sino-Soviet split, which uh, really came to a head in the late 1960s, this rift between Mao's China and uh, the Soviet Union, uh, particularly of, of um, Nikita Khrushchev and Leonid Brezhnev, before the Sino-Soviet split, communist ideology had claimed that uh, Marxism-Leninism was a scientific way of understanding the world, uh, and that communist parties had essentially a monopoly on truth. But the, because of this rift between Beijing and Moscow, which was not just about uh, geopolitics, it was also about ideology, each side claimed to have uh, the true understanding of Marxism-Leninism, and also accused the other of misunderstanding the ideology. That made a nonsense of the idea that this ideology had a singular access to the truth, because if the two leading communist powers couldn't agree with each other about what Marxism meant, well, that opened possibility to error in the ideology. It suggested that uh, maybe Marxism, or at least the Soviet interpretation of Marxism, could be mistaken. And so the claims that Soviet leaders and, and Eastern European leaders had presented to their own citizens that we understand what is going on, we have uh, access to the truth, true understanding of politics and economics and so on and of history, that lost credibility. And of course, when you add to this fact that the Chinese were accusing the Soviets of themselves turning into imperialists, just like the Western capitalist powers, well, that just redoubled this um, ideological challenge that Soviet leaders faced. Another element of this crisis had to do with the basis of communist rule in Eastern Europe. Uh, in 1968, the uh, Red Army and other Warsaw powers invaded Czechoslovakia to overthrow the uh, reformist government and the reforms implemented by Alexander Dubček in Prague. 
the Soviets were fearful that these reforms would go too far and would lead to the downfall of communism. And so they felt it necessary to enforce communism, to protect communism in Czechoslovakia using military power. But what the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1960 demonstrated was that the loyalty of the Soviet Union's Eastern European allies ultimately rested not on what we might call the consent of the governed, but rather on the threat or the use of force. So the Soviets were able to maintain control through superior military power, but they could no longer claim popular political legitimacy. And in response to the invasion, many communists, former idealistic communists uh, in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, abandoned their earlier faith. They concluded that the system could not be reformed in the way the Czechoslovakians had hoped to reform it. Uh, and if it couldn't be reformed, then it had to be overthrown, which in turn fueled the emergence of small but, I think, influential dissident movements and caused even larger numbers of people simply to um, turn away from politics, to turn inward, to abandon their faith in the system, and to, to disengage with it. The final element of this crisis was economic. Uh, by the late 1960s, it was incontrovertible that the communist economies faced growing economic difficulties that were related to the system of central planning. These inherent problems with central planning could have been overlooked in the post-war period when the communist economies actually grew well. They grew very quickly. But by the late 1960s, uh, it became impossible for communist leaders to continue claiming the way they had once claimed that their economic model was inherently superior to capitalism. Uh, and communism in economic terms increasingly seemed to be falling behind and failing to deliver on its promise of better living standards for its citizens. Uh, and this, this crisis, this multifaceted crisis of legitimacy that was affecting the Soviet Union, I think was really summed up um, by Leonid Brezhnev in a memorandum to the Politburo that I quoted uh, in the book, in which Brezhnev said, uh, it's impossible not to see that we are facing new difficult problems that demand serious changes and major decisions. And Brezhnev understood that this crisis was both international and domestic. It was a 360-degree uh, crisis, uh, and therefore it demanded a comprehensive response and, an, and a new strategy that he then sought to develop, and which culminated in the uh, negotiations that produced the final act. Uh, now, what was the parallel crisis affecting the Western uh, powers? The West faced uh, difficulties that were similar but distinct. Um, some of the NATO allies and many citizens of NATO countries started to ask whether the Atlantic Alliance and whether American leadership had outlived their usefulness, especially in the context of the Vietnam War. Um, the most prominent example of this skepticism uh, was 
France's withdrawal from NATO's integrated military command in 1966. This is a decision by French President Charles de Gaulle. Uh, and that suggested to many NATO leaders in the late 1960s that there was a possibility that NATO was becoming obsolete, that it was, it was cracking up subject to these centrifugal pressures. Western citizens also began to criticize NATO in similar terms. Uh, there was some suggestion uh, among Western critics of NATO that maybe the problems of the Cold War ultimately were the fault of NATO and the Western allies, not of the Soviet Union. Now, this was a minority opinion, but it was one that worried Western leaders because they feared that if this trend continued, NATO would lose popular support, uh, popular support for robust defense spending would dwindle, and the entire Western strategy of containment could lose its domestic foundations. More generally, though, beyond this, I think, um, Western citizens began to rethink their relationship to their governments. They lost their earlier willingness to support military spending and instead demanded more social spending. They showed more interest in uh, education and health care uh, and uh, other forms of uh, other kinds of social programs. Now, this phenomenon was reinforced, of course, by the student radicalism of the 1960s, which caused, in the case of the United States, uh, young Americans to question their country's role in the world. And in the case of Western Europe, young uh, French students, West German students, young Dutch students, to wonder whether they should be following the American lead in the world. The nuclear balance, the nuclear stability that had been achieved in the early 1960s also engendered a whole host of pretty fundamental questions. Uh, citizens looked at this stable but dangerous balance and wondered if peace could really only be preserved by keeping the world on the brink of destruction. That seemed to be uh, uh, an unsustainable paradox to a lot of people. And an increasing number of thinkers, political scientists, government officials, began to look for alternative ways of preserving international security and preserving peace. And one form that these new ideas took was to suggest that it was, it was necessary to broaden the definition of security, to broaden the definition of peace. To say, in other words, that peace was not simply the absence of war, and that security was not simply a nuclear standoff. That these ideas, in order to make them more robust, in order to make peace more robust, in order to make security more robust, required an expansion of um, the, the terms of engagement with the with uh, with the East, so that peace required not just the absence of war or nuclear stability, it also required engagement with the Soviets. It also required a search for common principles and common values uh, to put that Cold War uh, balance on a firmer foundation. And of course, there's an irony here, um, because what I'm suggesting is that the stability created by nuclear weapons in the early 1960s led to 
difficult questions about the morality of nuclear weapons and a search for ways to transcend the nuclear balance. Just as there were economic problems in the East, there were economic problems in the West, too. Uh, and in the late 1960s, it became clear that the post-war economic structures of the Western world were starting to crack. The long post-war boom in both the United States and Western Europe, and especially in Western Europe and in Japan, had renewed the self-confidence of American allies and reduced their reliance on the United States. The French, the British, the West Germans, the Japanese didn't need the Americans as much as they once had. And in the case of uh, the European communities, its members concluded that in some cases, their interests actually diverged from those of the United States, whereas in the 1940s or 1950s, there had been an easier assumption of um, congruence between Western European and American interests. Now, the result of this growing self-confidence and uh, perception that maybe there's transatlantic divergence in economic interests, the result of this uh, was a series of economic arguments between Western Europe and the United States. For example, during the uh, Kennedy round negotiations uh, on gas, on tariffs. The Bretton Woods monetary system, also set up uh, after the Second World War, began to show its age because particularly, uh, because particularly of um, heavy American social and military spending in the mid and late 1960s. It caused uh, an outflow of American capital and downward pressure on the American dollar. And as a result, it became clear that it would be very difficult to preserve the uh, exchange rates, the fixed exchange rates that were at the foundation of the Bretton Woods system. And it looked like uh, these economic structures that had been the foundation of post-war economic prosperity in the West were starting to fall apart. So taken together, this crisis in the West had consequences for NATO. It looked like NATO was cracking up. It looked like the domestic consensus uh, in the United States and its allies was cracking up, and it looked like the post-war economic order for the West was cracking up, too. So there was a sense by the late 1960s in the West, especially the East, that new strategies, new approaches were necessary to solve these crises and to put the legitimacy, not just of Western governments domestically, but also of the Western order internationally on a new, more solid foundation. Who were in the what you refer to, quote, the class of 1969, and, uh, unquote, and how do they differ from the leaders of the period that you refer to as, uh, quote, the high Cold War, unquote? I make the argument that uh, there is a group of leaders that emerges almost simultaneously in 1969 in both the West and the East that share a common concern with these crises of legitimacy. And these leaders are all concerned with solving these problems that they see. So who are these leaders? There's four in particular that I identify. It's really, it's, it's kind of an amazing coincidence that they all come to power at roughly the same time with 
Similar, not identical, but similar ideas. Uh, so first, in the East, there's Leonid Brezhnev, who, of course, uh, came to power in the Soviet Union as general secretary uh, after the ouster of Nikita Khrushchev in 1964, which he helped organize. But it's not until 1968-1969 that he really emerges as first among equals, particularly in the realm of foreign policy. And it's from the late 1960s on uh, that Brezhnev establishes his preeminent position within the Soviet government and his particular control over Soviet foreign policy. In the West, uh, there's, of course, Richard Nixon, who's allowed at the end of 1968, becomes president at the beginning of 1969. And then in Western Europe, the two leading figures also who both come to power in 1969 um, are Willy Brandt in West Germany, who's the first uh, social democratic post-war leader uh, in Germany. And in France, there's uh, Georges Pompidou, who's uh, allowed to succeed Charles de Gaulle, who, had, who resigned uh, that same year. So what do the leaders have in common? Well, the argument that I make is that they all see these crises of legitimacy, and they all about defining new strategies to solve those crises. Now, what is it that distinguishes them from their predecessors, uh, from Khrushchev, from uh, Lyndon Johnson, say, from Charles de Gaulle, um, from Adenauer or any of the other post-war conservative German leaders? Well, I, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, one is that they face this crisis in a way that the previous the predecessors had not. Their, previous, their predecessors had faced their own sets of problems and had struggled to stabilize the Cold War by the early to mid-1960s, which they managed to do but that stabilization uh, fell short of real peace, real East-West understanding. They established uh, a, a modus vivendi, but not a truly durable uh, solution to the problems of the Cold War. So uh, to, let me take uh, a few different cases. So the difference between Brezhnev and Khrushchev. The differences between Brezhnev and Khrushchev, I think, uh, were matters of uh, temperament and strategy. Uh, Khrushchev, and here are some of the stereotypes about the two leaders, I think, bear out. Khrushchev understood that the Soviet Union was lagging behind the United States in all sorts of ways, in strategic ways and in economic ways. And his approach to try to solve those problems, to try to catch up or to um, make good the Soviet Union's weaknesses, his approach was essentially to gamble, to make big, big bets that could either pay off or lead to disaster. In strategic terms, this led to the uh, Berlin crisis of the 1950s, which went into the early 1960s, almost brought about nuclear war. It led, of course, also to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which had uh, even more dangerous consequences. Uh, and in domestic terms, Khrushchev made big gambles on, for example, uh, improving living conditions, building all sorts of new housing, uh, trying to increase food production in the Soviet Union uh, through the Virgin Lands Project, 
And some of those big bets paid off, like, for example, a housing project, which did have real benefits for Soviet citizens. But in most of the other cases, they were expensive uh, or dangerous failures. And it was because of those big failed gambles that the other members of the Politburo in 1964 decided that Khrushchev had to go. And Brezhnev, in many ways, was a response to Khrushchev, uh, the opposite of Khrushchev in many ways. So where Khrushchev could be a gambler and could be reckless, Brezhnev was much steadier, much more committed to um, preserving predictability, both in domestic politics and in East-West relations. Uh, and he set about solving some of the same problems, some of the same problems that Khrushchev saw, but in a more deliberate way. So, for example, he also perceived that the Soviet Union was at a strategic disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the West, particularly uh, in the case of nuclear weapons. The West still had a huge, uh, the United States in particular, had a huge advantage, um, for example, in ballistic missiles when Brezhnev took office in 1964. And instead of trying to provoke crises and to gamble to redress that balance, Brezhnev instead methodically set about increasing the Soviet nuclear arsenal at huge expense, but with great effect, so that by the late 1960s, the Soviets had achieved rough strategic nuclear parity with the United States. They basically caught up thanks to uh, Brezhnev's big arms buildup. In domestic affairs, Brezhnev also perceived the uh, economic weaknesses of the Soviet Union. But here again, he didn't want to make big bets or try to um, tinker with the fundamentals of the Soviet economy. He was wary of major reform. Uh, particularly for ideological reasons. He was worried that major reform, major reforms of the system of central planning would be ideologically incompatible with Marxism-Leninism. And so he looked for alternatives, ways to improve economic performance and standards of living uh, without fundamentally changing the system. And so he decided that Western cooperation, cooperation between East and West, would be the way to do that. So that required... Uh, expanded, improved relations with Western Europe and with the United States to bring economic benefits to the Soviet Union. Um, he was deeply committed to peace in large part because of his experiences fighting in the, the Second World War uh, and hated the idea of nuclear war, hated the instability of the high Cold War. And so again, wanted methodically to improve East-West relations to put peace on a firmer footing. And he saw an opportunity in improving East-West relations to establish a new claim to legitimacy for the Soviet system. So to say, instead of the old claim that Marxism-Leninism and the revolution uh, was the inherently superior system and would ultimately triumph worldwide and would deliver uh, higher standards of living to its citizens, instead of making that the primary claim to legitimacy of the Soviet system, he would say that the Soviet system was the preeminent, preeminent champion of peace in the world. 
and that the Soviet Union was fighting for peace. And so by shifting the terms from the inherent superiority and ultimate victory of communism to the defense and protection of peace, Brezhnev hoped that he could um, put the Soviet system domestically on a firmer foundation, put the international system on a, domestic, on, on a firmer foundation, and ultimately uh, address and solve these deeper problems that he saw uh, in a way that would be more sustainable and successful than Khrushchev had tried to do. Um, in the case of Willy Brandt, just to give you a, another case from the Western world, uh, Brandt's major concern, which he shared with some of his predecessors, most of his predecessors as Chancellor of West Germany, was German reunification to overcome the Cold War divide in the country. He had been um, mayor of West Berlin. He understood in a visceral firsthand way what this division meant for West German citizens, for East German citizens, too. And he wanted to find a way to overcome that. Now, his predecessors, his conservative predecessors as chancellor, um, had insisted that reconciliation uh, between East and West would be impossible until the Soviets first agreed to erasing the Cold War division. In other words, the Soviets would have to give the West Germans what the West Germans were asking for um, on Germany and solve the problem of uh, the division of Germany first. But Braun said that insistence, that, that hard line towards the Soviets of refusing to recognize, uh, say, East Germany, refusing to do business uh, in a serious way with the communists, was not leading to results. That was not solving this problem of the divided Germany. So Brandt inverted that earlier, that, that old formula. And instead, he said, well, let's engage with them first. And let's recognize them first and do business with them first. And hope that over time, this process of engagement and reconciliation will eventually lead to reunification. So, for example, he abandoned what had been known as the Holstein Doctrine, which had been a mainstay of West German foreign policy up until that point, uh, according to which West Germany would refuse to recognize any government that recognized East Germany, would refuse to have diplomatic relations with them. As a, as an attempt to isolate East Germany, to squeeze East Germany, to undermine East Germany. Instead, he said, well... We have to do business with East Germans. We have to recognize this reality and come to terms with this reality first if we hope to transcend it. So those are just two examples. Uh, Brevna and Brandt looking at the approaches that their predecessors had taken, deciding that those approaches had not worked, in fact, in some cases had been dangerous or counterproductive, and then finding new ways to, you might say, accomplish some of the same goals, but by using different strategies. What was the, what were, I should say, the differing motives of uh, Moskva, Warsaw, and uh, East Berlin in reviving Molotov's Berlin Conference proposal of uh, 1954, uh, suggesting a European security organization? Hmm. 
Yes, this question gets to the heart of where the final act came from. The final act was the product of this massive diplomatic effort called the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, or the CSCD. Uh, so one of the questions that the book examines is, where did the CSCE come from? Why was it created in the first place? To understand this, where the CSCE came from, um, ultimately we have to look at these crises of legitimacy that I described, the strategies of the new Western leaders who were um, trying to find ways to solve those crises of legitimacy, and then we have to look at the, uh, the politics within the two alliances in the uh, early 1960s. The Soviets had first put forward the idea for a European security conference uh, in the mid-1950s. And for year after year after year, Western governments had rejected the idea on the grounds that this was a thinly veiled attempt to undermine NATO and expose Western Europe to Soviet influence. Well, in the mid-1960s, uh, Brezhnev revived this idea that had uh, originally been put forward by Yeshlov Molotov, and he made it a personal priority. And over time, I argue, the CSCE became the centerpiece of his whole strategy for rebuilding the domestic and international legitimacy of the Soviet Union became his highest priority um, in foreign policy, the organizing principle of Soviet foreign policy. And this idea, this proposal, became a subject of quite serious contention within the Warsaw Pact because the Allies disagreed about the purpose of the conference and what shape the conference should take. And this is because the Warsaw Pact allies actually had uh, different priorities, priorities that diverged from those of the Soviet Union. So there was actually, by contrast with this idea that the Warsaw Pact was a, a monolithic organization which the Soviets dictated to their allies who simply um, dutifully followed along, there was actually real debate and disagreement within the Warsaw Pact. So to be more specific about the CSCE, what did they disagree about? Well, the East Germans... And the Poles took a very hard line on this conference idea. And they said, this conference should not happen until the West Germans first recognize Europe's post-war frontiers as permanent. Now, why was that so important, though? Well, for two very simple existential reasons. Both countries, East Germany and Poland, depended on new frontiers that had been drawn after the Second World War. Poland's frontiers had changed after that conflict had ended, largely at uh, Stalin's insistence by his fiat. The Soviet Union's borders had moved west, and Poland's borders in turn had moved west and uh, taken over what had been German territory. So... Poland's, the, the entire legitimacy of the post-war Polish state required the recognition of these new post-war frontiers as legitimate. And that was something that was fundamental to uh, Polish foreign policy in the early part of the Cold War, all the way up until uh, this period. 
the Poles believed that this was a prerequisite for everything else that they wanted to do. They needed international recognition of their borders and, by extension, international recognition of their state and also of the communist regime in the state. The story was similar for East Germany, of course, because the existence of East Germany was premised on the division of Germany itself, which was intended, had originally been intended at the end of the Second World War, to be temporary. But by the late 1960s, was looking like anything but uh, temporary. It looked like a permanent way of doing things. At least that's how it looked to the Germans. That's what they wanted. They didn't want to leave open the possibility of German reunification because German reunification would mean the, uh, the end of East Germany. The East Germans insisted on the recognition of their borders and the existence of the East German state as permanent. Uh, as a prerequisite to this security conference. So leaders in East Berlin and Warsaw said, this security conference idea that the Soviets are putting forward should not happen until the West Germans first recognize our borders and, by extension, our states. Now, that was an absolute non-starter for the West Germans. No West German leader uh, could recognize the absolute permanence of East Germany, because to do so would be to to nullify West Germany's commitment to um, German reunification. So that was one reason for division within the Warsaw Pact. Uh, the Poles and the East Germans wanted to slow down this Soviet idea and impose all sorts of preconditions on it that they would demand from the West first. There was also a challenge to the Soviet idea from a different direction, from Romania. Now, the Romanians, uh, and Nicolae Ceausescu in particular, these were not... Uh, reform-minded communists. These were not liberals in any sense. They were, in some ways, uh, more Stalinist, uh, harder line than the Soviets themselves. But their concern, particularly in the wake of uh, 1968, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, their concern was to assert their independence and their sovereignty vis-a-vis the Soviet Union to protect uh, their autonomy within the Warsaw Pact and to prevent the Soviets from doing to them what the Soviets had done to the Czechoslovakians or to the Hungarians. And so the Romanians looked at this conference idea and said, this is fantastic. We should convene this as soon as possible. We need the conference to recognize the independence and self-determination and sovereignty of all European states. So the conference should happen as soon as possible in order to do that, in order to protect Romanian security and sovereignty against the Soviet Union. So the result was a three-sided argument, you might say, within the Warsaw Pact, with the Soviets in the middle, the East Germans and Poles on one side, and the Romanians on the other, arguing about uh, the ultimate purpose of the security conference and how it should come into being. Uh, how, or um, I should say, why did the Western powers react differently to the uh, security conference proposal that uh, was uh, made at Budapest, I believe, in 1969 or 68? Yeah, that's right. 69, and, yeah, that's right. And uh, as opposed to the complete rejection of uh, Molotov's proposal in January 1954. It's a great question, and it really it really gets at the heart of all of these dynamics that I've been talking about. 
the Soviets, as I mentioned, first put forward this security conference idea in 1954 and have persisted with it, asking the West to engage in these negotiations. And for year after year after year after year, the Western powers had said no, 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 no. But remarkably, in 1969, finally, the Western allies say that they would consider participating in this conference. So how do we explain this? What's the reason for this change of heart? Well, I think there are two main reasons. The first reason is the crisis of legitimacy that uh, I spoke about earlier. By the late 1960s, the Western powers had come to fear that if they continued to say no, continued to reject uh, this Soviet proposal to talk about peace and security in Europe, well, then Western citizens might look at this dynamic and say, actually, the responsibility for the continuation of the Cold War lies with the Western governments. It's the West that's to blame. The Soviets want to talk. The Western governments are saying no. So it's the fault of the United States and its allies. And Western leaders feared that if, if their citizens reached this conclusion, support for NATO would erode, support for military spending would erode, and so on. So th there was this um, recognition or this conclusion on the basis of these domestic problems that they had to start engaging positively with the Warsaw Pact's proposal. This imperative of engaging with the East was reinforced uh, by a major report that NATO issued in 1967 in response to its own centrifugal pressures and, and the challenge from Charles de Gaulle. This was the Harmel Report, which was named for the uh, Belgian foreign minister uh, who drafted it, Pierre Harmel. And the report committed NATO both to its original mission of the military defense of Western Europe and added a new mission, which was the pursuit of negotiations with the East and the broader process of East-West detente. The logic of the Harmel report was that whether East-West relations improved or deteriorated, NATO would remain a vital organization to the Western allies. If they improved, NATO would be there to lead the negotiations, to take a, a prominent role in those negotiations for the Western powers. If they deteriorated, well, then NATO's military function would become uh, ever more important. So having issued the Harmel Report and committed publicly to the mission of East-West negotiations, detente, as a, as a way of reinvigorating NATO and giving it a new... Uh, reason for being, the Western allies concluded, I think quite reasonably, that they couldn't simultaneously say, yes, we want negotiations with the East and reject the Soviets' persistent and serious proposal to hold these negotiations. The West finally had to say, yes, we will do business with you. So that's the first reason, this feeling that the Western allies could no longer say no. The second reason is uh, what you might say, call a more positive construction. And this is that by 1969, the Allies reasoned that they could take this conference idea that the Soviets proposed and turn it to their advantage. 
turn it to serve Western purposes. Up to this point, the consensus uh, within NATO had been that a security conference would help the Soviets and hurt the West. Well, now the Western allies were uh, thinking a little bit more creatively. And they decided, actually, if we approach this in the right way, we can spin it so that it will serve our purposes and will exploit the Eastern crisis of legitimacy and actually weaken the Soviet Union. And to this end, they came up, the Western allies came up with a number of concrete demands that they said had to be satisfied before the conference, before the conference could meet. So, more specifically, they said, first of all, the North Americans, meaning the, America, the Americans and the Canadians, had to participate in these discussions of the future of Europe so as to preserve the transatlantic bond. Up until this point, the Soviets had been vague about uh, who would be allowed to participate in these negotiations. They said, well, this is a conference about security in Europe, and they had hinted that maybe only the Europeans should participate and that the Americans and the Canadians should be marginalized. Well, NATO as a whole said, absolutely not. If we're going to have these negotiations, the entirety of NATO, including the North Americans, has to participate. The Soviets agreed to that. Second of all, the Western allies said, before any security conference opens, some kind of modus vivendi, some kind of arrangement about status of Germany and the status of Berlin has to be reached so as to prevent these questions from derailing the conference agenda. Of course, Berlin and the division of Germany bedeviled East-West relations for the previous 20 years. And Western allies feared that unless there was some sort of permanent solution, but at least stable, sustainable arrangement, unless something were reached on those two questions before the conference opened, the conference would, would just degenerate into recriminations about Germany and Berlin. And of course, the Western allies also recognized, and this is a crucial insight, that if the Soviets wanted this conference so badly, they should be willing to make concessions in order to get it. They should be willing to pay a price for it. And so they wagered that, well, we can use the Soviet desire for a conference as leverage in negotiations on the status of Berlin and in negotiations over Germany. So this led, in a, in a very concrete way, to the success of Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, this diplomatic initiative that he takes to um, sign treaties and improve relations with the Soviet Union, with Poland, with East Germany, and Czechoslovakia, and all of them happened very quickly after he takes office in 1969. So uh, the most prominent example, of course, of the Eastern treaties that are signed, the Moscow Treaty and then the Warsaw Treaty in 1970, um, that uh, dramatically improved relations between Bonn and Moscow and Bonn and um, Warsaw, and eventually lead to uh, the beginnings of reconciliation uh, between West Germany and East Germany. And this also leads, of course, to the four power agreement over the status of Berlin that finally stabilizes relations over Berlin between the, among the four occupying powers, the Soviets, Americans, British, and the French, um, in 1971. So by insisting on these 
agreements as a precondition to the conference, the Western Allies find a way to use the Soviet desire for a conference to serve their own purposes. And the third and final point along these lines uh, was that the Western Allies insisted that if the conference was going to happen, its agenda had to be expanded. The agenda that the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact more broadly had been proposing was minimalist. They wanted the conference to recognize Europe's frontiers, ban the use of force, and to encourage economic cooperation in some kind of diffuse sense. The Western response to this was to say, peace has to be defined more broadly than that. Security has to be defined more broadly than that. So if we're going to talk about security in Europe, we need to talk about humanitarian questions, things like respect for human rights and concrete measures to alleviate the human cost of the Cold War, uh, things like expanding the movement of people, expanding the movement of information across borders, making borders more permeable to the transmission of ideas, to migration, and so on. And this notion of uh, freer movement and the related concept of human rights became absolutely fundamental to the Western approach to the CSCE. And those came directly out of the new strategies uh, that were articulated by the Western European members of the, the class of 1969, in particular, Willy Brandt and Georges Pompidou. So the Western allies saw the Soviet proposal by 1969 as an opportunity to put this strategy that they had been formulating into practice. And when the Warsaw Pact uh, put forward this more moderate um, Budapest appeal in the spring of 1969, the Western allies responded positively to it. They decided they could not continue to say no, and they also discovered a whole set of reasons to say yes. And it's from that point in uh, mid-1969 that work on the CSE, work to bring the CSE into being, really begins in earnest. That's when the idea really starts to get traction, uh, which leads by 1972 to the opening of the negotiations. Did the uh, departures in 1970, both Gomolka in Poland and Ulbricht in the DDR, make things easier for Moscow and in terms of getting its allies to agree to its um, proposals on the security conference? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think so, especially in the case of East Germany. Um, Ulbricht had been a difficult ally for the Soviets for a long time. And his replacement with Honecker, who was someone... I think who was more willing to defer to Moscow absolutely made things easier for the Soviets. Uh, but I think what was actually more important in um, making life easier for Brezhnev in advancing his vision for the security conference and in overcoming this uh, three-sided rift that I had described within the Warsaw Pact, what actually made that easier um, was, in fact, the success of Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik. Because... The Warsaw Treaty that West Germany signed with Poland in 1970 recognized uh, the borders, the post-war borders of Poland, 
It didn't recognize them as immutable, but it recognized them as legitimate. And this is something that Pulse had wanted for a long time. This was one of their reasons for convening the security conference. So by 1970, their uh, precondition, the main thing that they wanted to achieve before the conference opened, they, in fact, had achieved through this uh, diplomacy with West Germany. And you might say the same thing um, with East Germany, that the um, expansion uh, of West German, East German relations and the signing, for example, of the um, transit agreement and then the basic treaty, these other pieces of the Libanus-Ostpolitik, as these fell into place, they gave the East Germans um, some a greater feeling of, you might say, uh, security or satisfaction than they had had before. There was still the basic disagreement that the East Germans wanted their frontiers to be recognized as permanent, which the West Germans refused to do. But at least there was a basis for cooperation. And so the uh, East Germans and the Poles were willing to go along by this point, by 1971, 72, were willing to go along with... Um, Soviet initiative in a way that they hadn't been before uh, because of this success in uh, West German foreign policy. What did uh, Kissinger uh, initially think of the security conference proposal, and would it be the case that uh, he never really changed his view of it all the way up to 1975? Kissinger's view of the security conference uh, is complicated, or his role in the, in the security conference is complicated. When he uh, entered the White House in 1969 as Nixon's national security advisor, one of the first questions that he had to deal with uh, was this Soviet proposal for a security conference. Uh, if we, we have the accounts from both the American side and the Soviet side of his initial conversations with uh, Anatoly Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador in Washington. And this was one of the very first things that Dobrynin raised with Kissinger. And Kissinger's initial reaction to the conference idea was, uh, this is a meaningless exercise. Uh, it's maybe even a dangerous exercise because it seems the Soviet proposal seems crafted to advance Soviet interests, maybe push the United States out of Europe, fracture NATO, and so on. So his initial view of the CSE initiative was that uh, this was either a pointless exercise that would generate nothing of real value. It would just generate meaningless declarations that wouldn't actually change anything fundamental for the West. Or, if the West performed badly, it could actually undermine the Western alliance. So he was, at best, skeptical of the idea at first. Uh, and Nixon's views, I think, were very similar for the same set of reasons. Their priorities, of course, were elsewhere. They had other things that they wanted to achieve, other things that they thought were more important for American foreign policy. Um, for example, ending the war in Vietnam, establishing um, some kind of strategic uh, arms deal with the Soviet Union, the opening to China, to name just uh, three of their top priorities. But for both Nixon and Kissinger, they also recognized 
by late 1969 that the Western Europeans were a little bit keener on, a little bit more interested in this CSCE than they themselves were. So they reasoned that, well, if America's Western European allies want to go ahead with this, what's the harm? We should stop them. Because if we do stop them and and squelch this idea, which Americans probably could have, they probably could have stopped it if they wanted to. If we do this, this could provoke, uh, provoke a transatlantic rift. This could this could weaken NATO, and it could also harm our relations with the Soviet Union, which is really pushing for this. So by 1970, 1971, their attitude to the CSCE, which was still being discussed, hadn't yet come into being, but was heading in that direction. Their attitude was well. If the Western Europeans want it and the Soviets want it, let's not stand in its way. We're not going to get anything out of it. It's probably going to be a waste of time, but let's not block it. That is the basic attitude that Kissinger and uh, Nixon maintained to the CS, towards the CSCE almost to the very end. When the negotiations actually get going in 1972, when they open uh, the preparatory talks to set up the conference, started in Helsinki in 1972, and then when the formal negotiations themselves start in Geneva in 1973, the actual CSE itself in 1973, Kissinger finds himself trying to walk a tightrope. On the one hand, the Soviets are saying to him, the American government. The Western Europeans are demanding too much of us. The Western Europeans are demanding all of these concessions on freedom of movement, on emigration, on information, on human rights, all sorts of stuff like this, on, on European borders, which is another major point of contention. So we want the American government is what the Soviets said. We want the American government to pressure the Western Europeans to back down, to rein in their demands. On the other hand, though, Kissinger was under pressure from the Western Europeans because they had particular goals that they wanted to achieve in the negotiation. They needed the Soviets to make concessions. And the Western Europeans expected their American allies to back them. So Kissinger's type was this. He needed to keep both the Western Europeans and the Soviets happy, even though they had irreconcilable demands. And for much of the negotiations, he simply tried to placate both of them, to keep both of them happy without making without making um, major concessions, without particularly favoring one side over the other, and hoping that things would work themselves out. In 1974, though, he's starting to get set up with the Western Europeans' demands. And he begins to put pressure on the Western Europeans, if not to make concessions, then at least to define limits on what they're asking for, and to give their bottom line to the Soviets to 
speed up the negotiations, which had been very slow moving, to speed up the negotiations and actually bring them to a conclusion. The Western Europeans react to this gambit. Kissinger's pressure on them very badly. Their attitude is, why should we define what our bottom line is and tell the Soviets what our bottom line is? That is a fundamental error in any kind of negotiation, to give up your backstop position to your adversary. Uh, then we'll end up making concessions on that basis. It's terrible tactics. And anyway, whose side are you on? They said to Kissinger. And finally, Kissinger was forced to relent the backlash um, by the Western Europeans to this proposal that he was, this initiative that he was undertaking at the behest of the Soviets was so fierce that Kissinger had to back down. The following year, in 1975, he finally starts to change his tune a little bit on the negotiations. He starts to say, uh, within the American government, within the White House, and also to the Western Europeans, if the Soviets want to bring this thing to a successful conclusion, if they actually want to get a deal, let them make the concessions. It's their job to give in to what the Western allies are demanding. And he begins, This is by this point he's Secretary of State as well as National Security Advisor. He's giving firmer support to the Western European position. And finally, uh, the Soviets, by 1975, they start making serious concessions. Now, we might ask, why does Kissinger change his tune? There's a couple of possible answers. One is that he started to see the value of the security conference, started to see things from the Western European perspective. There's some evidence for that. There's a little evidence for that. I think the much more convincing explanation, though, is that he sees that in the United States, in domestic American politics, there is a growing backlash against the strategy of detente. And there's a growing skepticism of Kissinger's foreign policy. Uh, by this point, of course, Nixon has resigned, Gerald Ford is president, and so the detente strategy is really associated very strongly with Kissinger himself. There's this growing sense that Kissinger has been too soft on the Soviets, too willing to do business with this authoritarian government. This criticism is coming both from the left, from the Democratic Party, and it's also coming, importantly, from the right, from conservatives within the Republican Party, people like Ronald Reagan, who are criticizing Ford and Kennedy for being soft on the Soviets. So Kissinger calculates that the security conference is a good opportunity to, uh, to demonstrate that the United States could get tough with the Soviets, or at least not, not uh, make concessions to them unnecessarily. So his harder line that he adopts in 1975, which puts increasing pressure on the Soviets, um, I think is at least in part, maybe mostly, the result of these changes in domestic American politics. Uh, how did the human, how did human rights discourse insinuate its way into Western negotiation tactics during the conference? The concept of human rights is 
central to the Western uh, approach to the conference from the very beginning. And here, by the beginning, I'm talking about the beginning of serious Western thinking about the CSC, so the late 1960s. The earliest reference that I could find to human rights um, as part of the Western agenda for the CSCE uh, was from 1969, early 1969, in both um, the French government and the American government. So why does human rights uh, come onto the Western agenda? Why do the Western powers take up this idea? The first deeper reason is that over the course of the late 1960s, and of course this gets much stronger in the 1970s, there's growing attention to the notion of human rights um, in Western politics, in Western culture, in Western society, in Western intellectual life. This, there's this broader surge that's bigger than uh, diplomacy in the Western world, growing attention to human rights, growing attention to humanitarian problems, growing attention to human rights violations, uh, both in the Soviet bloc, violations by the Soviet government, the governments of uh, the USSR's allies, and also violations within the West. This is the era, for example, that Amnesty International really starts to become a, a prominent force in um, international and domestic politics. So there's this background influence of growing attention to human rights in the Western world. Uh, but more specifically, there's this recognition on the part of Western leaders and Western diplomats that emphasizing human rights, or at least a particular interpretation of human rights, could give the West a major advantage over the Soviets at the CSCE. The calculation is basically this. The Soviet system, and this is the reasoning of Western officials, the Soviet system requires the suppression certain human rights, human rights that are taken for granted in the West. It requires uh, censorship. It requires restrictions on freedom of expression, on freedom of movement, on emigration, on the kinds of media that citizens in communist countries can read, can consume. So if that's the case, if the Western powers can use the CSCE to advance human rights claims, to force the Soviets to recognize not human rights solely in the abstract, but particular kinds of human rights, maybe that will begin to open up Soviet society. That will begin to relax these restrictions that, Soviet, that the Soviet system is based on. And in time, Maybe this will undermine communism itself. If the citizens of the Soviet bloc can travel internationally, can read more widely, can listen and watch, well, listen to Western radio broadcasts, watch Western television, watch Western movies, uh, can speak freely, it will be increasingly difficult for the Soviet system to sustain itself. This was the strategic logic of the Western governments in pushing these ideas. And so on that basis, they made 
these questions, the, the, the usual shorthand that scholars have used for these questions is human rights. But I think that actually uh, says both too much and too little. It says too much because they weren't pushing human rights in just in the abstract, the abstract notion of human rights. They were focusing on particular kinds of rights, particular kinds of freedoms that were very carefully chosen to play to Western strengths. These were all things that Western governments, Western citizens could take for granted, the ability to, to travel, to reap what they wanted, to speak freely, and so on. And also, these were designed to undermine the Soviet system. So this was uh, human rights weaponized, you might say. And I think to describe uh, the Western objectives at the CSCE, or to describe what the final act does, simply under the heading of human rights, this says too little because it underplays the ways in which that theme of human rights was integrated into this much broader strategic vision for the CSE and for the final act, which was a vision premised on uh, not just the relaxation of censorship, but openness more broadly in international affairs. Uh, the term that George Pompey, the French president, used was interpenetration the intermingling, the greater understanding, greater mutual understanding of the East and West, the lowering barriers uh, in all sorts of ways, not just in humanitarian ways, but in other ways too, in terms of the, the nature of borders and military affairs and trade uh, and so on. And all of these policies, this comprehensive vision of which human rights was one piece, uh, was designed to open up and ultimately to undermine Soviet system. How important was Bond's victory in what you refer to as, uh, quote, the Battle of the Comma, unquote, in early 1975? <laughs> this is one of the uh, more abstruse questions that came before the CSCE. Uh, one of the central points of contention at the negotiations was the nature of international frontiers, the borders between states. The Soviets, from the beginning, had wanted language in the, in the final act, in this text that they were negotiating, to recognize international borders as permanent, as immutable. And the reason they wanted this was to uh, lock down the Cold War division of Europe to prevent it from changing, and so ultimately to um, prevent challenges to communist rule, to the existence of East Germany, uh, and to give Brezhnev, uh, you might say, ammunition for this new claim that the Soviet Union was the guarantor of peace in the world and the guarantor of peace in Europe. But of course, the Soviet demand that frontiers be recognized as permanent was totally unacceptable to the West Germans and to the West Allies, because they were committed to not just locking down the division of Europe, but to overcoming it, to erasing the division of Europe, to reunifying Germany. So the fight at the CSCE over this question uh, expressed itself in a number of ways. One was, what language should we use to describe the nature of frontiers? The fight came down to the Soviet demand that frontiers be recognized as immutable or permanent, 
versus the Western demand that frontiers be recognized as inviolable, which meant that they could not be changed through aggression. They could not be assaulted. That's another word that the final act used. Now, this may seem like uh, a ridiculous, abstruse point. Some observers, including Kissinger, said that described the negotiations as Kantian or scholastic or Talmudic, as if this were about diplomats debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Actually, what these very fine-grained linguistic debates got at were these absolutely fundamental questions of, uh, about the nature of the Cold War and of Cold War strategy. Uh, so it seemed to be these abstruse, bizarre arguments uh, were actually uh, windows into or ways of fighting these foundational battles. Now, you asked about the Battle of the Comma. This has to do with one of the other ways that this argument over the nature of borders played itself out. Now, the Soviets, on the question of whether borders should be uh, immutable or inviolable, they conceded to the Western demand. They, they agreed that borders could be recognized as inviolable. In other words, they could be changed implicitly. They could be changed but not military force. They could be changed by other means. The other demand that the Western powers made was for a separate statement in the agreement, an explicit statement, not just an implicit one, but an explicit statement, borders could be changed peacefully. Uh, and the text that was negotiated on this point um, said that orders could be changed uh, by peaceful means and by agreement in accordance with international law. And there emerged a fight over the placement of a comma in this particular sentence, uh, the details of which are probably a, a little too abstruse to get into. Um, but what the West Germans were concerned about was whether the Soviets were trying to use the placement of comma in one of these small linguistic debates, one of these small linguistic arguments, to impose additional conditions on how frontiers changed peacefully. The West German fear was that the Soviets, by the placement of this comma, could take the position that the frontiers um, could be changed, that in order to change frontiers, three conditions had to be met. They had to be, the frontiers had to be changed peacefully, by agreement, and in accordance with international law. And the West Germans feared that the Soviets would say, well, international law imposes all sorts of other requirements that aren't stipulated here that pose a barrier to the idea of peaceful change of frontiers. So the West Germans were fearful that this small uh, matter of punctuation would open the door to the Soviets to block the, the fundamental principle that the West Germans were pushing for here, the, the recognition that frontiers be made peacefully. Well, just as the West Germans won the battle, over immutability versus inviolability. The West Germans also won the battle of the Hum, uh, thanks to some uh, heated, last-minute, and I think exasperating high-level negotiations between uh, Henry Kissinger and his opposite number, the Soviet foreign minister, uh, uh, Andrei Gromyko. They reached a compromise on this that essentially satisfied the West German demand and gave the West Germans what they want. The important thing out of all of this is that the final act recognized that borders could not be changed through aggression, 
but could be changed through peaceful means. In other words, the final act recognized the principle of German reunification. And when the Cold War started to come to an end in the late 1980s, in, uh, after the Berlin Wall, Wall fell and the negotiations over the future of Germany, that principle was actually central to the demands or the arguments that Western leaders made in pushing for Soviet recognition of, um, or Soviet acceptance of German reunification. George Bush, the American president, Helmut Kohl, West German chancellor, said to Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, look, the Helsinki Final Act establishes the principle that frontiers can be changed peacefully. We are now demanding the peaceful change of frontiers within Germany to bring about German reunification. And Gorbachev said, you're right, Helsinki does recognize the principle. Uh, and so he agreed that he had to um, recognize German reunification as legitimate to go, to go along with those, with those Western demands. So all of this is to say that what seemed to outside observers in the negotiations to be these um, abstract, uh, inscrutable, strange fights over choices of words and over punctuation, they actually had really profound implications and ultimately really profound consequences for the whole Cold War. Uh, post facto to the conference, uh, why did the Soviet Union and its uh, Warsaw Pact allies lose, as you see it, the struggle to, quote, uh, interpret the final act, unquote? After the final act was signed with great fanfare in the summer of 1975, this was a summit meeting the likes of which the world hadn't seen in decades, if not centuries. There emerged a struggle to uh, interpret what the final act actually meant. So we can say that the struggle up to 1975 was to define the content of the final act. After 1975, it was a struggle to interpret the final act. What did this actually mean? Uh, and the, the Soviets, even though they had made all sorts of concessions in the negotiations that basically vindicated uh, the Western position, gave the Western governments almost all of what they wanted, the Soviets continued to insist in the years after 1975 that uh, they hadn't given up all that much, that the final act uh, still confirmed uh, Soviet positions. So the Soviets, uh, for example, in response to growing Western pressure to uh, free Soviet dissidents, to show more respect for the kinds of basic rights that were outlined in the final act, the Soviets uh, said, well, uh, the final act instead recognizes the supremacy of the principle of sovereignty. And so by criticizing our human rights record, you are interfering in our sovereign affairs. And more importantly than these individual human rights, uh, the fundamental human right, Soviet uh, diplomats said, the fundamental human right is the right to live in peace. And by, again, interfering in our domestic affairs, you are threatening that fundamental human right. So the Soviets essentially uh, stonewalled against this Western pressure. And domestically, the Soviets continued to make the argument to their own citizens uh, that the final act was a confirmation of the success of 
uh, of communism. This is a triumph for the uh, peace program of Leonid Brezhnev and the Soviet Communist Party. This affirmed the USSR's leading role in um, the struggle to secure peace internationally and so on. And Brezhnev fundamentally believed that. So the, the let's say the decade from 1975 when the final act is signed to 1985 when Mikhail Gorbachev becomes general secretary, that decade is characterized by these arguments between East and West over the interpretation of the final act. And I suggest in the book that the Soviets ultimately lose that fight. Uh, they lose it in a few different ways. Uh, first of all, they lose the fight to uh, persuade Western citizens about what the final act means. Immediately uh, after the final act is signed, there's a lot of skepticism among Western journalists, scholars, uh, and the public more broadly about what the, the meaning of the final act was. And there were a lot of, a lot of people who uh, believed, actually, that the CSE was a victory for the Soviet Union. But that begins to change pretty quickly as uh, all of those groups in the West see the advantages. They come to see the CSCE as uh, a, a, a very useful tool for the West and East-West relations. So the Soviets lose that battle to convince, you might say, the Western public more broadly. The Soviets increasingly struggle to convince their own citizens about the value of the final act. And you have the emergence of influential dissident groups in the Soviet Union and in Eastern, Europea, in Eastern Europe, too, that say the final act requires communist governments to reform themselves, to show basic respect for citizens' human rights. So here I'm thinking of uh, organizations like the Moscow Helsinki Group, um, of the Charter 77 Initiative in Czechoslovakia, which is uh, led, among others, by um, the dissident Václav Havel, who goes on to become the first post-communist president of Czechoslovakia, uh, thinking of the Solidarity Movement in Poland, uh, which takes off in the late 1970s into the early 1980s and agitates for um, greater freedoms, greater uh, higher standards of living for workers, and so on, and, and tries to carve out an independent civil society in Poland uh, that's separate from the control of the, the Communist Party. So the Soviets lose this fight to convince important segments of their own societies over the meaning of the final act. I think uh, Brezhnev also loses the fight to a certain extent within the Soviet government itself because there are a number of crucial Soviet officials both at the time of the CSE when the final act is being negotiated and also after who become persuaded by the Western arguments, who buy into this idea that genuine peace requires openness, requires greater cooperation between East and West, requires a relaxation of the controls that communist governments had imposed on their own societies. So there's a growing number of people within the Soviet Communist Party and who eventually reach positions of high influence uh, who by the Western interpretation of the final act. And all of these things come together when Mikhail Gorbachev takes power in 1985. Because Gorbachev begins 
fundamentally to rethink the underlying assumptions of Soviet domestic policy and Soviet foreign policy. And the new directions that he takes Soviet domestic and foreign policy in, these all echo the basic principles of the final act, in particular of the Western approach to the final act and the Western interpretation of the final act. And so it's from 1985 on with Gorbachev and the Kremlin um, that the final act really comes into its own and begins to exert this very powerful influence uh, over the direction of international politics. Uh, wouldn't it be the case that uh, an objection to the book or to your thesis in the book is that uh, it is in essence a post hoc, post hoc ergo propter hoc, if B comes after A, therefore B is caused by A, uh, argument, and that as a matter of fact, um, if the CSCE conference had never existed and the Helsinki uh, Final Accord had never been executed and signed in 1975, the Cold War would have pretty much ended the same way in the same fashion that it eventually did end in 1989-1990. I don't make the argument in the book, great question, I don't make the argument in the book that the CSCE or the Final Act caused the end of the Cold War. Um, I think that's, that's much too broad a claim, and the end of the Cold War came about for a whole uh, variety of reasons beyond, uh, that, 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 are, that are separate from the CSCE and the Final Act. Um, instead, the argument that I make is that the Cold War uh, ended according to the principles that were laid down in the final act. Uh, and I, I make that case in a couple of ways. So the first one is that, as I mentioned a minute ago, the policies that Gorbachev begins to implement uh, are strongly, they, they strongly echo the ideas of the CSCE. I'm not saying that he got all of them from the CSE, but I think that the CSE was an influence on his policies and also a tool for him to use. Uh, to give you some concrete examples, the most important manifestation of Gorbachev's approach to foreign policy was an idea that he called the common European home, uh, which was another way of stating the core idea of the final act, namely that, that Europe required a new unified international order based on a shared set of values that transcended the old East-West division. And as Gorbachev began to implement this policy, and as his reforms grew more radical over time, he embraced the final act on almost every point. So the final act uh, repudiated the Brezhnev Doctrine of Soviet foreign policy, uh, which was articulated in 1968, in which said that the Soviet had the right use force to preserve communism in any communist country. The final act says that states have a right to self-determination, and they can choose their own alliances. Uh, Gorbachev begins to embrace this idea, telling the Eastern Europeans, certainly by 1989, um, that the Soviet Union is not going to preserve communism by force, that they are free to make their own decisions, and that instead of the Brezhnev Doctrine, uh, instead, what will prevail in the Warsaw Pact is what became known as the Sinatra Doctrine. Then the Eastern European allies will be allowed to do things their way. 
uh, Glas- uh, excuse me, Gorbachev's policy of Glasnost, which uh, emphasized freedom of expression and freer free information within the Soviet Union itself, that echoed the freer movement ideas, uh, the freedom of information ideas that were in the final act. Um, Gorbachev embraced a broader concept of international security, which included, as a fundamental principle, respect for human rights, which was also in the final act. He used the final act in internal debates at the highest levels of the Soviet government um, to fight back against hardliners in the Politburo who wanted to resist his reforms. Gorbachev turned to the final act and, and did turn to the final act and say, look, we need these commitments. We have to make these reforms because this is required of Soviet foreign policy. Um, in fact, it's in the Soviet constitution. In 1977, Brezhnev incorporated the 10 principles of interstate relations from the final act into the Soviet constitution. So this gave Gorbachev a tool to use against his domestic opponents. I would also say that if you look at the, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, the negotiations over German reunification in 1989 and into 1990, Western leaders could cite the final act to make the case for reunification and to persuade the Soviets to agree to it and to agree to withdraw Soviet troops from German territory. Gorbachev uh, agreed with Bush and Kohl's suggestion that these Helsinki principles had to prevail, that borders had to be changed, or that borders could be changed by consent, and that every state had the right to choose its own allies, which of course meant that a reunified Germany could leave the Warsaw Pact. And if you look at the document that I think is the closest the Cold War comes to a final peace treaty, which is the 1990 uh, Paris Charter for a New Europe. This is a product of the CSCE, and it explicitly endorsed and recapitulated the principles of the final act. And among other things, it declared that respect for human rights was an essential principle of international order. And this this Paris Charter from 1990 became the foundational document for the post-Cold War world in Europe. So I'm, I'm not saying that the final act caused the end of the Cold War by itself. What I am saying is that its principles were uh, embraced by the leaders who brought about the end of the Cold War. It influenced uh, their own policies and their own deliberations. And finally, um, it had a huge influence on the document, the Paris Charter, that really marked the conclusion of the Cold War in Europe, which, which uh, recapitulated uh, all of the principles of the final act and, and um, vindicated the agreement that had been reached in 1975. And so for all of those reasons, the Cold War may still have ended, but I think it would have ended on different terms and uh, probably in a different way, maybe with more difficulty, with more conflict um, than the way that it did if the final act had not been signed. Professor Morgan, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. Uh, this is Charles Cutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on, new, on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>